The year was one of violent labor troubles and strikes. San Francisco's general strike gripped the city in a death-like clutch. While an auto accessory worker strike in Toledo, state guardsmen had to resort to tear gas, lead, and cold steel to curb the temper of the strikers. In Minneapolis, a truck driver strike was climaxed by severe riots and fights between the strikers and the police with many casualties. Warfare in the streets, civic strife at its worst. Hello, and welcome to 1934 Mill City Revolt. I am your host, Kelly Cable. When the explosive May strike came to an end on the 26th, no one quite believed that the struggle was over. Far from it, in fact. The union and the employers spent the month of June consolidating forces, enforcing the contract according to their respective interpretations, and educating their members and the public on the import of the situation. The hot summer of 1934 was just beginning. Local 574 continued to grow throughout the month, new members joining daily. To keep up with demand, on June 1st, a motion was filed to hire full-time organizers, the three Dunn brothers, Carl Skogland, and Farrell Dobbs. To keep them tied to the working class, rather than becoming labor bureaucrats, they insisted on being paid $25 per week, the average wage of a trucker. They performed their job dutifully. Filling station attendants, for example, who had been a source of tension during the strike, began to join. Package delivery drivers did as well. Workers across the industry proudly wore local 574 buttons on the job. The union local now boasted 7,000 members. To help consolidate the new members, they established a union headquarters at 225 South 3rd Street with Friday evening classes on trade union history and strike strategies. Farrell Dobbs recalled one such situation this way, quote, In one case, Ray Dunn and I, who were working together on the union staff, had a bizarre experience. A market firm had made a deal with a competitor to split a carload of oranges that was to be unloaded at the regular starting time of a certain workday. Then the boss ordered one of his drivers to get there early and haul away something more than his half of the carload. The driver refused, saying that he now belonged to a union and he didn't have to do things like that anymore. He was fired for insubordination. We gave the boss the alternative of putting the man back or facing a strike. He just sat back and looked at us for a few moments, and you could see in his eyes that he was reviewing the scene of the fighting in the market. Then he decided to return the driver to his job. But soon, the ambiguity that plagued the contract language discussed in the last episode began to poison union efforts. The resulting problems would lead strike leader Jack Maloney to say several decades later that the chief diplomat in the May strike, farmer labor governor Floyd B. Olson, had, quote, double-crossed the union and his working class base. The ambiguity manifested in several specific ways. First, the Employers Advisory Committee, which had officially represented the 166 employers during the strike, was itself not a formal organization. Thus, upon the strike's end, it dissolved. The signatory no longer existed. This meant that 574 had to negotiate with every individual employer separately. There was no industry-wide collective bargaining. The Citizens Alliance issued a special weekly bulletin to its members in early June, stating that, quote, Under the final order terminating this strike, there is no closed shop, nor is there any signed agreement with the union. It provides for arbitration under machinery to be set up by the Regional Labor Board. In each case, when complaints are filed in respect to any employer, 
who was a party to the arrangements, end quote. Therefore, not only did the union have to negotiate with every individual employer, there was also no general board of arbitration to handle all capital labor disputes in the trucking industry. Every single complaint resulted in its own board. This further entailed that simply setting up a board of arbitration to settle a claim was in itself a battle, one the union began to frequently lose. Many employers straight up refused to even meet the basic wage agreements. Firing workers without regard to seniority also began. A backlog of a staggering 700 grievances soon emerged by the end of June. A transcript from a meeting of an arbitration board illustrates this ambiguous situation well. Following the strike, a dispute involving five workers at the Jordan Stevens Company generated an arbitration board, the workers represented by Farrell Dobbs. To ease understanding, I am going to reduce Dobbs' three opponents in the transcript to simply the employers. The issue at hand involved the ever-present problem of the inside workers. Dobbs began, quote, The governor assured us that Section 8 would be interpreted to give us jurisdiction over these people. The employers respond, He gave you assurance? Yes, it was our understanding. If he gave you that assurance there, why didn't he write it in? You are saying the governor agrees with your interpretation, something different than what is written. No, it was not different from what is written. Why didn't the governor put it in then? You are asking me to read the governor's mind. He didn't tell you how we would interpret it? He said it would be the legal and logical interpretation. We considered the governor had a good legal mind and accepted his advice. The quoted transcript ends there, but it demonstrates the weak legal footing the union now found itself in, and why Jack Maloney would later accuse the governor of double-crossing. To a large degree, then, the agreement was a mere extension of a truce. Governor Olson had hoped the agreement would, quote, take on a life of its own and de facto lead to negotiations, end quote. And while 574 gave it a chance, the CA had no such intent. The Labor Board, tasked with ensuring compliance, refused to take action. Governor Olson was asked his interpretation of the clause, and now typical of his wishy-washy stances during the strike, he wrote on June 21st, quote, The disputed clause should be construed to include such categories as shipping and receiving clerks, stevedores, and freight elevator operators, end quote. But then, as Dobbs put it, quote, he negated even this limited concession to the union by advocating that the final determination be left to arbitration, end quote exactly the mud the union was fighting to free themselves of. However, even this weak claim angered the employers, who bought a full-page ad in the newspaper. However, even this weak claim angered the employers, who bought a full-page ad in the newspaper condemning it. But the labor board sided more closely with the employers, ruling that the clause applied only to truckers, helpers, and the platform workers who directly loaded and unloaded the trucks. The union sarcastically quipped, quote, the Labor Board has generously ruled that Local 574 shall have the right to represent almost half of its membership, end quote. Recognizing the worsening situation, the union leaders organized a meeting for June 21st. 574's membership voted to reaffirm their demand of union recognition and increased wages. In less than one month since the May strike, Local 574 began to prepare for another. And, just like the previous strike, 574 began an extensive campaign to prepare their forces, but so too did the employers. The local wrote to the National Teamsters leadership to provide an update and request help. The business agent, Cliff Hall, in consultation with the socialist leadership, 
wrote to Thomas Hughes, the General Secretary Treasurer of the National Teamsters Union. In a so-called diplomatic gesture, 574 did not complain about the lack of help in May, instead claiming that they had not requested endorsement because most members were new and thus not entitled to strike benefits anyway. The letter emphasized the employer's refusal to arbitrate wages and did not mention at all the problem of inside workers. At this point, knowing the National Teamsters Union's antagonism to their eagerness to build for strikes, they did not even request endorsement. Rather, they wished to be exempted of the initiation fees for their 3,000 new members. Hughes's response was a compromise. The National expected a $1 initiation fee from each member, and it said nothing about the problems the workers faced. The Communist League, the Marxist organization of which Skogland and the Dunn brothers were leading members, rallied to the cause. They launched a party-wide funding drive, asking members from across the country to contribute to the strike fund. They expanded circulation of their newspaper, The Militant, searching for workers inspired by the May strike to subscribe, so as to transmit information from on the ground. More important, however, was that the Communist League sent leading members to Minneapolis to help the union face down the employers, courts, and media. These forces included Communist League Secretary James Cannon, journalists Max Schachman and Herbert Solow, lawyer Albert Goldman to provide legal assistance and advice to the union, as well as Hugo Oler, who Dobbs called the talented leader of mass actions for the unemployed. Farrell Dobbs described the importance of their arrival in aid as follows, quote, The party fraction in the union was fully aware that valuable help could be received from the comrades who had come to offer special assistance. We were involved in a highly complex struggle, fraught with many hazards of a political nature. As in the case of all modern strikes, we could profit from competent political consultation and the help of journalists who were politically class conscious. It was also invaluable to have the services of an experienced organizer of unemployed workers and an able lawyer who was a revolutionary. These were precisely the main forms of aid received from the comrades the party sent to help us. A new dimension was thereby added to the Union's general staff, an accomplishment that was bound to yield important dividends." The primary figure to come to the aid of the Union was James Patrick Cannon, General Secretary of the Communist League. Born in 1890 in Kansas to Irish immigrants, who, like many other European immigrants, brought socialist convictions with them, joined the Socialist Party and the Wobblies in early adulthood. He was trained personally by the notorious Wobbly organizer, Big Bill Haywood. Following the Russian Revolution, Cannon helped found the U.S. section of the Communist Party, and when Leon Trotsky was expelled from the party in 1928, Cannon was among the American membership who protested and was himself expelled, founding the Communist League. Thus, Cannon's own history was remarkably similar to Skogland and B.R. Dunn. Cannon himself had flown out to Minneapolis from New York during the ending days of the May strike to help the strikers, but now included in the loop, Cannon returned to the city long before the strike itself began so as to better advise his members. Alongside Cannon was Max Schachtman, a Jewish immigrant from Poland. He had played a leading role in the Communist Party, and after his expulsion, the Communist League, as a journalist. As the managing editor of the party newspaper The Militant, Schachtman was tasked alongside Herbert Solow with publishing what Cannon later considered to be the Union's most effective weapon, a weekly and soon daily strike newspaper, The Organizer. Its first issue was published on June 25th. Dobbs described The Organizer's purpose as the opposing force to the employer's vitriolic messaging in the newspapers and on the radio. Quote, 
a medium the union could use to refute the lies of the boss press, give the true facts about its own aims and policies, and expose the anti-labor schemes of the bosses and the government, end quote. We will dedicate an entire episode to the organizer later. Hugo Oler, for his part, was to help with the problem of the unemployed, particularly heightened by Great Depression conditions. As before, the union made an effort to integrate unemployed workers. Traditionally, the unemployed can serve as a pool of desperate workers whom the employers can convince to break the strike and work as scabs. To prevent this, the union hosted an unemployed conference, an action quote, by what had become the city's most respected union, helped to emphasize strongly the duty of employed workers to back the demands of the unemployed. It gave fresh impetus to a growing trend toward practical union cooperation with the unemployed in fighting to improve the public relief system, end quote. The unemployed section numbered 5,000. Not repeating the major mistake of the previous strike, 574 reached out to farmers during the preparatory stages rather than during the heat of the strike. In cooperation with the Farmer Holiday Association, National Farm Bureau, and Market Gardeners Association, they developed a permit system. Only farmers with 574 permits would be allowed into the city with trucks, and they could sell only to smaller grocers using cars in a designated spot leased by the union. They closed the main city market as they had previously so as to harm the profits of the big wholesalers. The upshot for the farmers' organizations, such as the Farmer Holiday, was that the permits allowed them to recruit amongst the farmer class. The strike headquarters, pivotal to their prior efforts, was redeveloped, this time not at 1900 Chicago Avenue, but at 812 South 8th Street, right in downtown Minneapolis. Learning from previous experience, the commissary of the headquarters was better stocked with foodstuffs this time around and better organized. The hospital returned alongside Dr. McCrimmon and Mrs. McCormack, it would be staffed by the Women's Auxiliary again, reconvened and consolidated, and we will address their efforts in a later episode. Ironically, the headquarters was located across the street from the Minneapolis Club, a social club I mentioned way back in Episode 2 on the Citizens Alliance, where the wealthy and ruling classes regularly convened. Members of Local 574 also toured the other unions of Minneapolis to garner support and build for a massive gathering of the city's working class. On Friday, July 6th, a massive parade was held, then the largest public gathering in the city's history. It began in the Bridge Square District at 7.30 p.m. near the Hennepin Avenue Bridge, marched 18 blocks down Nicollet Avenue to the Municipal Auditorium. This building was where Orchestral Hall now stands. The parade was led by the motorcycle couriers who had participated as informants during the strike. The parade's Grand Marshal was a farmer labor city council member at Hudson, the point of that being to tie him to the working class in hopes of preventing betrayal. The Musicians' Union provided the music, and unions represented among the parade were the workers from the following industries, streetcars, laundry and dry cleaning, building trades, electricians, breweries, print shops, gas filling stations, upholstery, railroads, and garment making, as well as city workers and the unemployed. A contingent of students from the University of Minnesota joined, as well as farmers from the Farmer Holiday Association. Two airplanes circled above with 574 painted on them. Signs carried by those marching included, We Support 574, Down with the Citizens Alliance, and Bosses Do Not Want a Union, We Workers Do. As streetcar motorman Howard Carlson stated, 
these events, quote, radicalized people. 574 really knew what to do. It wasn't a private affair. Everybody came. Everybody was welcome, end quote. The city's working class united around the slogan, Make Minneapolis a Union Town. 12,000 people packed into the auditorium, with thousands more outside listening through the PA system. The speaker's roster included the chairman of the local building trades council, a representative from the Central Labor Union, Emery Nelson of the Teamsters Joint Council, former holiday leader John Bosch, garment worker spokeswoman Myrtle Harris, and W.J. McGoffrin of the Railway Clerks Union. From the stage, the charismatic Miles Dunn countered the CA's increased red baiting. Quote, They have now raised the red issue and accused us of being reds and radicals, of wanting to substitute a new form of government. And I say to you here, frankly, when a system of society exists that allows employers in Minneapolis to wax fat on the misery and starvation and degradation of the many, it is time that system has changed. It is high time that the workers take this from their hands and take for themselves at least a fair share of all the wealth they produce, end quote. Bill Brown, president of Local 574, who never identified as a socialist, came to similar conclusions, declaring that the city wasn't big enough for both the CA and the union movement. In a quip to which the audience of workers laughed, he said, quote, I want to say there is not a fair employer unless we are burying them, end quote. The rally adopted a four-point resolution. One, Local 574 had the right to represent all of its members, including the inside workers. Two, Local 574's membership should receive a wage increase retroactive to May 26th. Three, the bosses must sign a written agreement with the union, thus officially recognizing it. And four, the deadline for compliance to be set for five days hence, Wednesday, July 11th. The resolution stated, quote, As a united body, the unions accept a challenge of the Citizens' Alliance, prepare for decisive action, and proceed to a common victory. An injury to one is an injury to all workers from now on. End quote. Not to be surprised by the working class's militancy once again, the Citizens' Alliance did not sit by idly. They began a propaganda war through newspapers and radio. Charles Walker estimated that over the summer, employers and their allies aired 50,000 words over the radio, paid for more than 30 pages of newspaper ads, and authored a staggering 250 newspaper columns. In their propaganda, the Citizens' Alliance cunningly used the reactionary missives of Teamsters President Daniel Tobin against the local. Tobin wrote publicly in the Teamster Journal against the inclusion of inside workers, which bosses would be happy to hear. Quote, As I have repeatedly stated, unless we keep our contracts and protect ourselves, we would be continuously in trouble on account of the inside workers or others going out on strike. This international union will not sanction a sympathetic strike, end quote. Tobin's dismissal of working class solidarity in favor of cooperation with the bosses meant that no other Teamster locals in Minneapolis or St. Paul would be allowed to walk out to support the general driver's local. Robert Fleming, president of Local 120, for example, wavered back and forth under the pressure from above and from below. He echoed Tobin's rejection of inside workers, but in meetings at the Central Labor Union, would declare his support for 574. It was unclear what he believed. But later in Tobin's letter came the venom. Quote, 
We see from the newspapers that the infamous Dunn brothers were very prominent in the strike of local number 574 of Minneapolis. All we can say to our people is to beware of these wolves in sheep clothing. Never was their freedom in any country for the workers equal to that enjoyed by the workers of this country. That freedom is liable to be endangered by those semi-monsters who are creeping into our midst and getting into some of our newly organized local unions, creating distrust, discontent, bloodshed, and rebellion. The officers of local unions who do not guard themselves and their unions against a human monster of this kind are making a mistake. If you love the union which you have worked to build up, get busy and stifle such radicals because they do not belong in the union. This international union cannot watch them, but you men, who are closely in touch with your membership, should be on the watch for them. And believe me, when we find out that you are after one of the mob of hounds described above, the international union will help you in every way it can to protect our people from these serpents in human form, end quote. The bosses loved seeing their enemy's formal leader denounce them as half-monsters, wolves in sheep's clothing, and serpents. So much so, they used this propaganda package handed to them that they reprinted Tobin's letter in full in paid advertisement. Not that the newspapers didn't already print propaganda for free, calling on Governor Olson to preemptively break the strike and, quote, use every means in his power to guarantee and protect the freedom of the streets for transportation, end quote. Although for this era, Tobin's language was considered scandalous enough that it came with a disclaimer stating, words omitted are not acceptable for newspaper use. The letter was then printed as a leaflet for the bosses to distribute in opposition to the Trotsky communists and communist-led Local 574. This was fueled with another $50,000 raised by the Citizens' Alliance. Police Chief Mike Johannes took advantage of the scare tactics and in the wake of his humiliating defeat, demanded a 100% increase in the city's policing budget so as to hire 400 more officers, establish an academy to train the cops just like an army to handle riots, and also to purchase motorcycles, machine guns, rifles with bayonets, and steel helmets. In the interim, between the strike authorization and the deadline, the National Labor Board sent out a federal mediator to help defuse the bomb that was about to go off in the city. They sent the ACE mediators, Eugene H. Dunnigan, and later, Reverend Father Francis J. Haas. Still licking the wounds of Olson's betrayal, the strike leaders were skeptical of him from the start. James Cannon's perspective surely influenced them. He thought such mediators were slick rascals and conmen, whose sole purpose was to outmaneuver the workers and cut them to pieces. Over the previous year, FDR's Friends of Labor had already betrayed workers dozens of times. Journalist Charles Walker noted, quote, Their record is an amazing one. Two nationwide automobile strikes, a general steel strike, a general coal strike, and innumerable lesser industrial disturbances involving many millions of workers were scotched before they began. Only slowly did the workers discover that their agreements, to which the government mediators asked them to attach their signatures, left them precisely where they started. A whole group of men acquired nationwide fame in their new profession, and were summoned by governors and presidents of corporations on a moment's notice to give first aid to industry sick or dying of labor trouble. Haas and Dunnigan were summoned to Minneapolis to administer oxygen, if possible, to the dying negotiations between Local 574 and the truck owners, and to stop the strike, end quote. When Dunnigan arrived in early July, his first visit was to the strike headquarters. 
Dobbs quotes the diary of his wife, Marvel Shaw, leader of the Women's Auxiliary, on what happened upon his visit. Quote, Today, the federal mediator, I'm almost tempted to say meditator, as Harry DeBoer calls them, arrived in town. Mr. Dunnigan. I don't believe he had any idea of the situation here when he came to town. Pompously, he came to headquarters, and deflated, he left. And Mrs. McCormack and I had our share in his deflation. It was early in the afternoon while we were working on the order for our hospital at the new strike headquarters that a short, fat, elegantly dressed creature, replete with four fat cigars in his coat pocket, pince-nez glasses with a wide black ribbon dangling to his lapel, and a huge umbrella, suddenly thrust himself upon us. Leaning on his umbrella, he announced, I'm Dunnigan, Federal Mediator. I wish to see the organizing committee. They are busy right now, he was told. Do you care to wait? Impatiently, he seated himself. Will you announce me, he demanded. Oh, yes, we told him, and we announced him. Returning with instructions that the committee would be able to see Mr. Dunnigan in 15 minutes, Mac eased herself back into her chair and, with a twinkle in her eyes, which presaged fun, proceeded to dictate a list of supplies for the hospital which would have sufficed for a six-month civil war. Mr. Dunnigan's eyes began to pop. He sweated, he squirmed, but we went right ahead. Mac made comment as she enlarged the order, specifying instances where we might need the item mentioned. And Mr. Dunnigan continued to sweat, squirm, and tap his umbrella on the floor. At last, someone came out to usher him in the meeting. Mac and I laughed until our sides ached, and then went back to our real work. End quote. In the meeting with the strike organizers, Dunnigan attempted to extract what he called minor concessions from the union to use as bargaining chips with the bosses. He even dared to request to be made the union's representative in all negotiations. The union rejected this so-called offer, arguing that he should have made his first stop with the employers instead. Dunnigan pleaded for a five-day extension, and to this, the union did assent. The Wednesday, July 11th meeting went ahead as scheduled, however. The leadership reported to the union that, quote, all efforts to establish living wages and improve working conditions had been frustrated by the arrogant attitude of the employers, end quote. The union also responded to Tobin's attacks on them as serpents and monsters, quote, We note with the greatest indignation that D.J. Tobin, president of our international organization, has associated himself with the diabolical game of the bosses by publishing a slanderous attack on our leadership in the official magazine. The fact that this attack has become part of the ammunition of the bosses in their campaign to wreck our union is enough for any intelligent worker to estimate it for what it really is. We say plainly to President Tobin, if you can't act like a union man and help us instead of helping the bosses, then at least have the decency to stand aside and let us fight our battle alone. We did so in the organization campaign and in the previous strike, and we can do it again. We received absolutely no help of any kind from you. Our leadership and guidance has come from our local leaders and them alone. We put our confidence in them and will not support any attack on them under any circumstances. End quote. By standing vote, the union declared a strike would begin on Monday, July 16th at midnight. The Central Labor Union, the collection of delegates from Minneapolis unions, in turn adopted 574's strike resolution. Conservative forces did not accept this as necessarily inevitable. The vice president of the National Teamsters Union, John Geary, himself from St. Paul, declared the strike unsanctioned and, quote, illegal under union laws. If the strike went into effect, it would be an outlaw strike, 
from the standpoint of the national organization, end quote. When 574 leaders attempted to convince the St. Paul Teamsters to support them, a secret ballot of approximately a fifth of the local's 1,500 members was taken. 574 won the vote by a majority of 167 to 128. But Geary invoked the Teamsters' now infamous two-thirds rule. 56% of the vote was not enough to declare a strike. The bureaucracy defeated the motion. Within Local 574, in the Union of 7,000, a couple dozen conservative workers attempted to stage a coup, more or less, led by Robert E. Johnstone. At a meeting of the Central Labor Union, he remarked, quote, There won't be any strike. You can bank on that. He adopted Tobin's anti-solidarity position against the inclusion of inside workers, saying that each sector should, quote, handle its own problems, end quote. On July 15th, in a last-ditch effort, the so-called Committee of 25 staged a rump meeting at the Wesley Church to urge members of the union to organize a non-communist union. About 500 attended the meeting, and, to the Citizens' Alliance chagrin, the vast majority supported their leadership. Grant Dunn took over the proceedings, denounced the reactionary preacher who presided, as well as the stooges fooled by the CA. Bill Brown declared, quote, The charge had been made that the leaders planned to build a union so large and powerful that it could control industry. That was precisely the intention, end quote. Vice President Geary attempted to speak, but was shouted down. One of the conservatives was escorted to the stand and apologized for his big mistake. The meeting adopted a motion expressing confidence in the union leadership, and, as Dobbs put it, a meeting intended to demoralize the workers turned into a demonstration in support of Local 574. The union held a final pre-strike meeting at Eagles Hall on Monday, July 16th. Mo Hork presented a motion declaring full confidence in the strike leaders in rejection of the red baiting from the CA and Daniel Tobin. It was passed unanimously. Local President Bill Brown and socialist trucker organizers Mickey Dunn and Farrell Dobbs spoke. To head off criticisms of standing votes, a secret ballot was proposed, but the workers rejected that proposal. They stood unanimously instead. The membership then elected a strike committee of 100. It was composed of strikers who had played leading roles in February and May and represented a cross-section of the trucking industry as a whole. Its purpose was to maintain close ties between leadership and rank and file, as well as lead the strike through the tumultuous events that lay ahead. Another of its chief purposes was to absorb the conservative and waiving executive board. Now only a few members of a 100-man committee, the militant elements of the union could once again take charge. Its executive committee should be familiar by this point, VR, Miles, and Grant Dunn, Carl Skogland, and Beryl Dobbs, working closely with Bill Brown. Once the strike committee was elected, the membership celebrated singing Solidarity Forever and marched to the strike headquarters. But not done yet. The CA had convinced the landlord to lock out the union, but of all the tactics, this was the flimsiest. The strikers simply broke in and began to prepare for the first morning of the strike. As much as the February strike was a dress rehearsal for the May strike, May was to some degree the dress rehearsal for July. Every force involved in the conflict, workers, socialists, union bureaucrats, employers, city and police officials, the public, the governor, the media, federal mediators, and even the president, squared off for over a month in a tangled and bloody web of negotiations and battles. 
as James Cannon said, quote, power, not diplomacy, would decide the issue. In such things as the conflict of class interests, one must be prepared to fight. This is 1934 Mill City Revolt, and I am your host, Kelly Cable. Thank you for listening. <laughs>